Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Flip Your Lid. I am geeking out. Y'all know I'm a neuro nerd, but now I'm really geeking out because Dr. Pete Enns is with me today. He's an amazing man. He went to Harvard, has his PhD from there. He's very, very intelligent and really able to approach the Bible in a very accurate and yet creative way. So I'm honored to have him here as a guest. So Dr. Pete Enns, welcome to Flip Your Lid. Thanks, Kim. Yeah, it's very, it is very nice to be here. We've been talking about this for a while. Yeah. And uh, you finally got around to asking me. So, you know. Well, it was like asking I someone to the prom. I was daily by my email. I know. When well, will Kim? It's hard because like asking someone to the prom, but you're a man. So asking a man to do something is hard for me. And I had to humble myself. I know. What, when did we um, actually physically meet? Was this back in November, I think? It was. and we It were, was November, right? Yeah. November that was at Watershed. Right. And right. you spoke and you spoke so well and there was such a humble, there's such a humility to it in that. Um, so I walked up and I was like, hey, I'm Kim. This is my wife. And I went to my podcast. You were like, right. okay. Yeah, why not? Sure. Yeah. It was like, why not? Plus, sure. you you had heard of me. Because we were, uh, we're Facebook buddies. We are Facebook buddies. And therefore best friends. I yeah, think you we're said besties. that. We are yeah, besties. I think yeah. you said that. <laughs> and, and because of Facebook, I know you're into Wordle the way I am. Yes. So we're, we're going to have to get to that as well, because that's okay. very important to talk about. Okay. All right. But we'll we'll try to sound adult for a few minutes, and then we'll okay. get to Then Wordle. we'll get to the fun stuff. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Here we go. All right. So, Pete, please tell me what flipped your lid and what measures have you had to take to reconnect who actually are? <laughs> Flip my lid. Right. What hasn't flipped my lid? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, what flips your lid, it really comes from who you are and what your experiences are and the kinds of things that would flip your lid, right? Because right? things, people get their lids flipped by different things. But I think, I, not not to be sort of facetious, but I'd say probably life and just paying attention mm-hmm. to life as opposed to having a real cerebral orientation to things. I mean, I can't help who I am. I'm I'm intellectually curious and people are just right. wired that way and I want to figure things out. But I think for me, um, a lot of my growth has been the a process of putting that, you know, I know it's simplistic, but that left brain component yes. in its place, which is a valuable place, Yes. but not letting it rule things because then, you know, the ego and control and fear that comes from that. And when we're mm-hmm. afraid, we do all sorts of stupid things in our lives. So yeah. I'd say it's it's probably just coming to a point where I knew I couldn't control things anymore. Mm. Uh, professionally, family-wise and everything, and myself. Right. And then the realization that that's a relief to know that. Yeah. And then things calm down a lot. So that's, mm. that's the short answer to... Um, What's a big question, I think, for most people, I would imagine, when you ask Yeah. Well, I think that's part of your your forte and your gifting is that you take very complex things and put it in a simple, relatable way. Mm -hmm. And for you to be as intellectual as you are and still have that connectability, I love that. I think it's amazing. Well, I mean, I made the decision many years ago that I... I I didn't want to be, I guess, the kind of person who's 
only in academic conversations. I think they're important to have, right. you know, and and I read people who do that all the time. But I just decided really for my own sake, I just want to know if this stuff actually works mm-hmm. and what it means and really very basic questions like what is God like? You know, as a biblical scholar, how does the Bible fit into it? Like we ask on the Bible for normal people, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? Those are basic right. questions to Christian yeah. faith that are not easily answered. Right. And um, so for me, it was it was the bigger questions that I think are the questions that uh, people of faith tend to ask anyway, even if they don't think they're allowed to ask them. Right. Uh, rather than you know, the Greek translation of Proverbs or something like that. And, and what, what the translator did with the verbal system or something, you know, those are, those are great. I'm glad people do that sort of stuff. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I decided I wanted to spend my life doing different things. So. Yeah. I think that's a great decision. And so many of us benefit because you made that decision. So I know you have an interest in psychology, right? Cause I understand people to understand the Bible. Cause if you can understand the Bible and not people, I don't know how well that works out. Mm-hmm. Right. And so well, I just kind of want to jump in there and talk about, you know, the Bible and psychology coincide and they collide. And so uh, I just want to hear your words about that. Yeah, I, I think I'm trying to think if I would phrase the question quite that way, uh, but I know people do. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of the point. People do. You don't need psychology because you have the Bible, mm-hmm. but Psychology is about who we are as people, and the Bible is a a book that has particular purposes, which is, you know, like the Old Testament explaining for the benefit of ancient Israelites who they were as a people, what it means to be in communion mm-hmm. with his God, mm-hmm. um, why do things never work out right. And you do have prodding into the human condition. I think right. especially in places like Psalms, for example, and and some of the more lament literature like Job or Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. or things like that. But also you you have a book that's not really aimed at, uh, let's put it this way, not really even equipped to talk to us today about the advances in psychology that have been made mm-hmm. for you know, at least a hundred years now, you know, I mean, and, and not, not to say that people didn't think psychologically beforehand, they certainly did, right. but you know, it's, it's different. It's sort of like, you can't expect the Bible to speak the language of science, mm-hmm. right. like astrophysics or quantum yeah. physics or things like that, right. or even the weather, how the weather works, you know, right. the, the, there's a round globe. So I, I think, you know, when we take something like that's benefited people, like the study of the human mind and mm-hmm. why we do what we do, uh, and to sort of pit that against the Bible is already assuming something I'm not willing to grant, which is they should be in conflict. Mm. And what's behind that is a notion of the Bible as essentially having all of our answers about humanity. Right. And it's just, it just doesn't do that. Yeah. In my opinion, it doesn't yeah. do that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so people hearing that, if it doesn't give every answer for humanity, like that shakes people, particularly when you brought up less left brain versus right brain people are in left lower limbic which is where they live where things what they know is where they feel safe right our brain is created for safety mm-hmm. so that's why we see things as negative and things things as a threat to us because we have to stick with what we know so just right. saying that not all the answers in the bible can cause someone 
to come unglued. Yeah. And I understand that too, because we all like safety. I do. And, yeah. you know, being a left brain person, I understand that, but it, it, I think for me, it took a process of living life where clearly that wasn't working, mm-hmm. where I had to start rethinking some of those mm-hmm. things. Um, but you see, even, even taking a step back behind that observation, like this makes me nervous because you're taking away my source of certainty, mm-hmm. which gives me the answers to life's biggest questions. Right. That's already assuming a role for the Bible that is worth discussing whether that's the role for the Bible. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing to do to like encounter and, and engage that kind of an assumption is forgive me simply to read the Bible. Right. Because there are a lot of things there that don't really address us in any way. And we have to sort of put the square peg into the round hole. Like you're reading through the, the, the stories of the Kings and first and second Kings, you know, what's the lesson to take away from there? You know, don't be a bad king. I don't know what else to say. You know, it's um, because that's literature written right. for a, a certain purpose in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And not that you can't benefit from it in some sense, but I think we're asking something of the Bible. And I think actually of the nature of faith itself mm-hmm. that you, you're not going to get, in my opinion. Right. Right. Yeah. And so when you, when you, st- like what erupted for you that you started going, okay, I've got to look at the Bible differently because the left part of our brain is beautiful and it's wonderful, but it's not necessarily a place of connection, right? I can mm-hmm. speak about God from the left side. The right side is where I experience him. That's right. the creativity. That's a higher consciousness. So what right. I hear you saying is that you found a bridge. Something happened that created a bridge to get you more whole-brained in your interaction with the Bible. Right. What got you there? Well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit, paradoxical or ironic how that happened for me because, um, you know, I went to seminary because I wanted to understand what I believed. Right. And then I went to graduate school because I really want to dig further into what the Bible is, how to read it, what to do with it. Yeah. With the attention of like becoming a biblical scholar and maybe teaching someplace one day. Um, the thing is the, the more I dug, <laughs> and this is a very common experience, the more I dug, the more my patterns of thinking about the Bible that I had brought with me to graduate school, especially uh, PhD work, those things started to make less and less sense. Mm. And I started exploring the, the almost the uh, what's the right word for it. It's like the, the untamed world of, of like knowledge about the Bible and what happened and what didn't happen and all the Mm. different theories people have. And some of which make a lot of sense to me, some of which don't. And so you play with that for a while. And um, then I went back to teach at the seminary uh, where I, where I went to school, which is a more conservative seminary. And I tried to sort of bring these pieces together, sort of, a traditional way of looking at the Bible, but now, quote, knowing what I know that I didn't really know before and sort of being excited about the synthesis, bringing mm-hmm. those things together. Um, that lasted, that worked for a while, but uh, then there were things that happened at the school that made it very, very difficult for me and people like me to stay there and do that sort of thing, yeah. right? So the bottom line, I mean, to really get to the point is that it's after I left my teaching job there, that was in 2008, where I felt very free for a while, but then 
after a, about a year, maybe a few months or a year, I had a real existential crisis. I mean, very serious existential crisis about everything, meaning anything, you know? Yeah. And I, one day I was standing um, in, in my bedroom, just sort of staring out the window and something that had been welling up inside of me finally came out. And it was, Pete, I don't know if I believe anything anymore. Hmm. And which was a very unsettling thought because, you know, PhD, teaching in a seminary, but all this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So, um, but it was true. I didn't know anything. And I, I it, it, it made, it started to, that, that moment, I, I've reflected on it many times over the past, over 13, 14 years. And faith had been so easy for me. It was largely an intellectual process with some application, scare quotes, you know, application. That's like, if you get to it, that's yeah. great. But yeah. it's like the experience, right? The right brain stuff. Yeah, it's nice, but that's not really that important. The main thing is the left brain, keeping it all together, having a system where the pieces all fit together. Mm. And when, when you're teaching at a more conservative place and those beliefs are prescribed for you, Right. You have to sign a statement of faith and all yes, that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And I, and I did that in good faith. I didn't because I didn't allow myself, I think, subconsciously even to let that stuff come to the surface. Very conflicted internally, which I found out afterwards. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you know, I didn't want I when I left there, I was sick and tired of being told what I had to believe. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that day on in, in, in my bedroom, staring out the window. The 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 um the experience that I had, it wasn't a voice or anything, but it was like a thought immediately came to my mind. Like, well, Pete, you didn't want to be told what to believe. So what do you believe? Wow. And my answer was, I haven't the foggiest idea what I believe. Yeah. Because everything's off the table. I had to reconstruct everything almost from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And that didn't come easily. That was a very difficult time. The the long and short of it, not to go on on about this story, but what I that was for me a beginning of, and I wouldn't have put it this way at first, but the importance of the experiential side of the nature of faith, where the brain can come along for the ride and try to put things in order, right? But that's right. not the first thing, it's it is truly experiential, and I've mm-hmm. And and now the more I thought about it over the years, the more it's like, well, obviously, my goodness gracious, it's talked, talk, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know, it's got all these, mm. you know, reason, tradition, um, the Bible and experience, all these things, like a matrix that come together in terms of how you think about God, you know? Right. Um, so that was, that was wonderful for me. And I, and I just, for some reason, I got a hold of people who were more, uh, into a, a more contemplative understanding of Christian faith, which is very exper- experientially oriented. And it was like, it it made intuitive sense to me. Yeah. And I felt I had to go with that. And, you know, it's good that I did. I don't stop thinking, but I don't kid myself into thinking that what I'm thinking is the foundation of my life or my faith. Right. Yeah, that's profound. You know, in your book, the Bible tells me so. Why why defending scripture has made us unable to read it? And again, the the people that endorse this, Rob Bell, Rachel Holt Evans, like just amazing people. And I endorse this. You just forgot to put my name on the back, but I do endorse this as well. But we'll the next book, we'll do that. The next book. Yeah, we'll work yeah, on that. Okay. We'll get to that because you've written many books. But part of what you said just even in the beginning was about what you're talking about, the view of the Bible. 
doesn't come from the Bible, but from the anxiety of overprotecting the Bible. Right. You, you know, which is to summarize, like, that's profound. Like, you could probably unpack that for for hours because mm-hmm. of the level of of our need to protect the Bible instead of connecting to the Bible. Right. Well, and protecting the Bible, because what we're actually doing is protecting our understanding of God. Right. We're protecting, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how to put it, but we're protecting sort of our whole system, our whole narrative of what meaning is. Mm -hmm. And many of us have been taught that that boils down basically to the Bible. So the Bible is the linchpin to keep all those big questions together. And that's a rather large expectation to place on that. And, you know, the proof in the pudding is, you know, very often, you know, that can generate people of ill will because you can't tolerate people who think differently about the Bible, for example, or think Mm -hmm. differently about faith. They come to different conclusions even if they're wrong conclusions, they come at them in good faith and we can dialogue mm-hmm. and things like that. But there's no room for that because mm-hmm. once you have an enemy in your midst, you have to expunge them. You have to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm reading Richard Beck now, The Slavery of Death, which is a wonderful book. And he talks about, he uh, piggybacks on Ernest Becker about how all culture is basically an attempt to defy mortality. <laughs> we do things to occupy our minds to, to create the illusion that things will just keep going on like this. Right. And uh, the Christian faith has worked the same way, unfortunately. Mm. We create systems where we think we know everything and now we're safe. All the eternal questions are answered for us right now. Right. And if you stumble on any one point of that system of doctrine, the whole thing falls apart. Mm. And so you have a lot of animosity in the church. You have a lot of disagreements. You have... Mm-hmm you know, people getting really hurt by the mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. because you're messing with the system and the system can't be messed with. Yeah, yeah. So and that, I, and part of my transformation is learning to allow that system to be messed with and realizing mm-hmm. it's, you know, if God's real, that's got to be okay. We're it's just human, okay. we're doing the best we can. And that, yeah, that God's strong enough, the faith is strong enough to have these mm-hmm. questions, right? Which mm-hmm. is so much of why I want to talk to you. It's about the level of religious trauma and church hurt that people are experiencing. And then how the Bible has become a weapon. And I don't mm-hmm. think it was ever meant to be used in the way it's been used by so many people by myself. People have used it against me and other people I know what they've been through. Mm-hmm. So we just expand on just the psychological impact on people, particularly those raised in the church in regards to being taught that God is a punishing God, that there's a reward system. Mm-hmm. Will you right. unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, and I, and I think people have been, they've experienced that. And the whole psychological dimension of that is actually one that's not often talked about. I think it's more talked about nowadays than maybe let's say 20, 30 years ago, the internet helps with that because that's what people want to talk about. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's never the impact that it has on you. It's just what is truth. Yeah. And so truth is isolated from ethics, Mm. right? It's, it's isolated Mm. from how we treat each other, which, Mm. uh, you know, my, my friend and, and, um, podcast co-host Jared Bias wrote a yeah. wonderful book, Love Matters More, but he talks a lot about just what, there are different kinds of truth. Right. And in the Bible, truth is a relational word more than anything. And I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. So, um, you know, th- that's, that's the problem is just there because we put truth over how we treat each other. 
And we have proof texts like killing the Canaanites in the Old Testament, or maybe Paul being very angry in Galatians. Right. Right. But that's a church Paul sort of built, so to speak. And he's Mm -hmm. not happy with them confusing the gospel with circumcision. So, and he wants to sort of set them straight. So he's a little bit pissed off in in Galatians and a couple other letters. Other places he's much nicer. That's that's not the point. But, you know, it's, and and that psychological side is just not talked about because that's what affects people. Right. 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 You, you don't yeah. sleep, you toss and turn and all this kind of stuff. You have no friends left. Your community is gone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's unfortunate because um, it's rooted in the idea that the Bible interpreted our way gives us clear, unassailable, immutable, eternal truth. And yes. a lot of my writing has been to sort of expose that for being not really a good description of the Bible, just in terms of its content, but also just not a good way of thinking about even just life, which is not just memorizing passages, but it's Mm -hmm. learning to work through our existence with wisdom Mm -hmm. and community with humility, with God present with us. And the Bible plays a big role in that. It always does. But, um, the Bible always has to be interpreted and we're always faced with the challenge of bringing that Bible, which was written a very long time ago to bring that into a place today, or frankly, any time in history that is engaging things that the biblical writers had absolutely no sense of. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so will you touch on like looking at narcissism, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible, narcissism within the Bible and just how somehow, and I don't know the right words for this, but somehow narcissism within the church has become so commonplace, such a normalcy that we don't even see it. Right. Any words yeah, about I th- that? I think, um, Maybe especially with leaders yes. in the church. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one thing there, again, coming back to the Bible, is that it's, I'm not sure, you know, narcissism in the Bible, I'm not sure um, what that means exactly. Do you, I mean, do you want to flesh it out a little bit? Or yeah, do you mean more I just leadership? think of, so, so my wife asked me last night, she said, you know, who in the Bible do you think needed a therapist? <laughs> okay. Right? <laughs> we didn't. And so I thought of David and I thought of Paul. Yeah, and and just the idea that we revere David and the things mm-hmm. that he did, and that I was taught. Oh yeah, I should, right, right, right. Yeah, right I should have the right. heart of David, who is a he's a, he's a rapist. Yeah, right, and mm-hmm. and and murdered, made sure that someone was murdered so that his his desires could be fulfilled. And to right. think about Paul and to watch his journey and how he potentially viewed women, how he talked, how he different things, and mm-hmm. how he goes from. From, by the end of it, for me, reading Paul, he sounds humble. There's parts of it that there's a level of narcissism. And it's maybe just because I'm a therapist. And yeah. that's the only lens I can I hear things Well, through. I mean, I think of like Second Corinthians where Paul is, um, I just read Second Corinthians a few months ago for the first time in a while. And like this guy's really, he's had his feelings hurt and he doesn't like the way he's being talked about. And right. he's like, there's a little guilt manipulation working on in there, you know, because, you right. know, he's human. What, what yeah, are you going to do? Human. But again, the thing is like, 
looking looking at David for what he was, mm-hmm. which is only sort of just a little bit beyond beneath the surface. Like the biblical writer is like painting a good picture, right? But he's also letting things hang out there and just letting you figure it out for yourself. Yes. Um, or Paul needing a therapist, or mm-hmm. were there times Jesus needed someone to talk to? I don't know, you know. Right. But still, right. allowing them to be human beings rather than these perfect vessels of absolute truth and everything they say is perfect and wonderful, mm-hmm. get, then that's where the that's where it gets difficult. And right. for some people, you're taking the Bible away, but for other people, it's like, well, actually, we're giving it to you, but differently, we're we don't get absolved of our responsibility. That's right. Of trying to be wise people yeah. to really know ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. one of, um, I don't quote John Calvin often, and it's only because of my own trauma in my life. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Calvin was not an idiot. Um, he, he was, he had a lot to say and it was, you know, a long time ago and what, blah, blah, blah. But he starts off um, his magnum opus, which is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And the first thing out of his mouth, basically, is knowledge of self and knowledge of God are two sides of the same coin. Mm, he doesn't say yeah. coin, but you yeah. can't know yourself without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing yourself. Right. That's they right. work together. And, right. and I think uh, bringing psychology into this, in my opinion, the problem that many people face that I've encountered, that I'm aware of in my own life, is that I don't really know myself. Yeah. I don't know who I am and what makes me tick. I right. don't know why I react to things the way yeah. that I, I don't know what my shadows are. You right. know, I don't right. know why my chest is tight, all that kind of stuff. You know, we yeah. don't really know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we just wind up projecting that mm-hmm. onto God, yeah. which is really a dumb thing. If you think about it for a millisecond, that's like the eternal universe and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. It just, and, yeah. and we're sort of projecting our crap on God. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. But then, of course, we project all that, our understanding of God. Yeah. We project that on other people. Right. Yeah. And that's where conflicts come, I think. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So people, but people do struggle with the psychological side of things. And, and the narcissism is something that I think can come from Christian leaders who feel that being a competent leader is a matter of simply holding a Bible up and waving it and happening to know what's in there. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like the Righteous Gemstones. Have you watched the Righteous Gemstones on HBO? Um, I can't afford HBO, Pete. Thanks for bringing that up. No, I, I, I've not seen it, but I will now that you called yeah, okay. me out like no, that. The I Righteous will, yeah. Gemstones is basically a parody, quite clearly, of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, but okay. but it's much more complicated than that. But um, the narcissism of the leadership, yeah. where it's 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 laughable. It's it's a comedy. It's, it's meant to be laughable, but it's also very it's it's laughable because it's also true, right? Yes, yes. And 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 um, my church, yeah. My ministry, right. you know, and right, right. That kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm building my church. Well, it's not your church. It's not your ministry. Mm-hmm. You're not needed here, you know. Right. So it, it um, you know, the humility part isn't always there. You know, and I yeah. think I think that's part of just how our system is set up in America, especially mm-hmm. in evangelicalism and other places. It's just sort of set up for that kind of narcissism. It is. There's pieces of what you just said that is why I love you and I'm so excited to talk to you because it's it's that sense of part part of my mission and what I want to share with people 
and have people come alongside with each other is about in the church, we are taught, it's not just in church, it's in our families, it's in society, we are taught that we cannot connect to self. That death mm-hmm. of self means self-neglect, self-abandonment. Right. And so when I was drinking and drugging, people kept coming to me and saying that there's this God that loves you, sent his son for you. That's how worthy you are. He sent his son for you. But then I got mm-hmm. sober and they told me that I was selfish and that I shouldn't pay any attention to myself. Right. That's what my problem was. And I should just seek, earn God's love. Right. Which I don't believe God's story is of earning. I think it's a I think it's of grace. And so I think that's part of the mission is teaching people without a sense of self, mm-hmm. then you can't have agency of yourself. And then it's an opening to abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that abuse can come, as you know, in many forms, um, emotional, intellectual, sexual, everything. And Absolutely. and the gospel does not require us to put down our humanity. And just be opening waiting vessels mm-hmm. for something other people can do for us. Right. 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 I just, it's, I, I think hopefully the Bible is a very humanizing book. And actually, I mean, indirectly, the humanness of the Bible comes through in, for me, and, and I don't know who's listening to this, but I'll just say it directly things like the tensions and contradictions within the Bible mm-hmm. when you have different authors having different opinions on things right. right right to me that's not a bad thing that's okay that's that means I wrestle with the Bible but I'm mm-hmm. also wrestling in a community of like real people not just trying to figure out what does God mean you know by this mm-hmm. no I want to know what what Matthew means right? right and and in doing that I'm going to wrestle with what God is like and to what extent I might you know take these words with me or say, I need to think about this a bit longer. This isn't making much sense to me. And I think that kind of a way of just thinking of the nature of faith can help, I think, uh, distance people from abusive kinds of ecclesiastical relationships, mm-hmm. you know, but it's hard to even know that it's happening to you. True. Right. True. That's just, that's pretty typical. You don't know that it's happening until mm-hmm. it's much later and then you say, "How I, I've known many people who have left very conservative, um, control-oriented settings, and it took them a year or so before they said that was screwed up. Yeah. How could I stay in there? Well, yeah. it's easy to stay mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. if you're if this the system works very well and they sell you something mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. They sell yeah. you you're yeah. wretched, right." You can't do anything without God. And on one level, I want to embrace that. Another level, I just read the Bible and it's like, it's not like that. We have to think through things. We have Mm -hmm. to wonder and ponder and be amazed and be curious. Mm -hmm. And that brings back, like you said, our human agency, I think. Right. That's right. And so many people who are abused as a child, and some of it's mild, if you can call it abuse, mild up to severe dysregulation. And then you come into a church and there's a familiarity of the parental you know, dynamic that's there, mm. that if you get the the pastor, if you get the leadership staff to approve of you, if you can do enough to be seen in that right. church and be approved of, your system, your autonomic nervous system is already acquainted with the idea that, that there's no such thing as self, that it's just about earning. It's just about mm-hmm. a, right. approval seeking. Approval, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so I think that's why some people who are abused get very involved with church. It becomes their second parenting so mm. it doesn't become the true reparenting that I find people do very well yeah. in therapy, but it's the second parenting that it 
is another layer of abuse. And without without us speaking out and you writing your books and things you're doing, then people will continue to be abused and it will be years later before they realize that's what even happened to them. Yeah. I like the way you put that. It's like looking for a second parenting and because that's wired into us, so to speak, like this mm-hmm. is how you do life. This is how you do faith. Right. And and I understand very well, like in, in years of, I've been in churches when I was younger, I would want the approval of the pastor. Right. Absolutely. Intellectually. So that's what it worked yes. for me. Right. Right. Um, I was never abused or anything, but I allowed myself to fall into a pattern mm. that I don't blame it all on those experiences, but just I, I had to think differently, you know, and yeah. and there is something about authority in the church, but also it's not an authoritarian authority. You know, it's yeah. more of a modeling authority. It's a servant authority kind of mm-hmm. thing. And and I know people complain a lot about the Roman Catholic Church and what's happened mm-hmm. there with the sense of authority and you don't question the priest and things like that. But I, I think that's I think that is actually endemic to any sort of religious organization. Sooner or later, you're going to have the hierarchy. Usually sooner, even if they say they don't have it, they have it. Right. And as soon as you have a certain hierarchy that speaks to your most basic of human conditions, namely, you're going to die. And then what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of power mm-hmm. to give someone. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when I read the New Testament, the focus is not on what you're going to do after you die. It's it's how do you be a people right now yeah. that basically turns the world upside down. Right. Well, and that's that's I mean, you're you're so spot on. Of course you are. But that's part of the gaslighting, right? That it becomes yeah. the uh, hyper focus on you're going to go to hell. Unless you do these things, mm-hmm. right? That there's so much emphasis on if you want to be in heaven and be, you know, closer to God and be able to worship Him for eternity. If you want to see your relatives again, they've already died. Then you have to do these things. Mm-hmm. Like that's a lot to be gaslit with. Exactly, and I I've talked with a number of people in my life where they will say things like, you know, Pete, I, I see what you're saying about the Bible, but if I can't be sure, for example, that Adam and Eve were real people, mm-hmm. then I can't be sure of anything. Mm. And I don't know if I'm ever going to see one example, um, my three-year-old son who died. Mm. So, okay, you know, I get it. Yeah. I absolutely get it. You know, um, the harsh answer to that is welcome to the mystery of life and death. Yeah. And how are we going to process that? without the kind of safety net that we think we can get from the text. I think mm-hmm. if there is a safety net, it's mm-hmm. a it's actually not a net. It's more being infused with the spirit of God, which is in us and around us, and trying to learn what that means, particularly amid incredible sorrow and grief. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think a lot of this, I was talking to one of my colleagues uh, years ago, and we were asking, why do people react so with such anger and so viscerally mm-hmm. about having their doctrines challenged, especially the Bible, which, right. which always relates to God. God and the Bible are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said something like, well, I think it's because 
they like having a life where everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, I think it's more than that. I think they need to know what happens to them after they die. Right. And I said, that, that seems too specific. But as I thought about it over the years, I think, mm -hmm. no, I think that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. we, we claim to deliver an answer to the most profound question of the human predicament. Right. Why do we die? And is there a way of getting out of it? Right. And that's a really powerful thing to have. And who doesn't want to have an answer to that? Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I would yeah. love to snap my fingers right now and have, I mean, I'm 61. I'd, who knows? I've had a good run. I could drop dead after in the middle of this podcast. I don't know. Right. So, I mean, I'd like to know, but I've, I have learned to simply not live in that fear. I'm really not afraid. I'm actually curious. I'd like to know if I'm right or not. Yeah. I'd like to find out. <laughs> I want to die and say if I'm right or not. Was I right about all this stuff? Okay, great. But, yeah. you know, yeah. so there's a little bit of a curiosity, but um, the fact is that we all die and and we have to have a religious system mm -hmm. that embraces that fact, but also gives us a sense, I think, of let's say a general hope right. that God, I think, I mean, I, I believe this, that that consciousness continues, that God is bigger than that, but we just don't know. We right. don't know all that stuff. We we can't. We can't get a verse to figure it out, you know, yeah. and we just have to live with that uncertainty. Yeah. Well, and, and here, now th I love the word curiosity because, I, you know, you and I talked before we completely came on air about ventral vagal, which is part of your parasympathetic, which is what I call your internal heaven. It is where you experience connection It's where we're grounded. Internal heaven? Yeah, I call it internal heaven. Oh, I like heaven. that. Okay. Yeah, right. thanks. That's the second thing I've said you think you, you said you like. So, yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> I'm a slut. Don't push I'm, it, yeah. Kim. Okay, Don't I'm sorry. Back and down, back and down. <laughs> Becoming humble for yeah. me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But it's just the idea of when we're in that place of, of mental vagal and curiosity, it means I'm curious about my place in the world. I'm curious about your place in the world. And so it means if you tell me something that I have not heard before or it does not coincide with my belief system, a curiosity will be asking questions if I'm if I'm stuck more in a sympathetic, which means I'm not in a place of connection, I'm going to defend, right, right, or I'm mm -hmm. going to shut down, mm -hmm. and that does not allow movement. I think I think God is so much about movement and curiosity in that mm -hmm. I'm I'm strong for me. I'm so strongly cemented in my love of God that whatever you say is either going to add to that or I'm just going to ask you questions about it and let it stay where you have it. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a threat for me is my point. Right. But I think, I think getting to that, mm -hmm. I guess what smarter people than I have called non-dualistic thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a hard place to get to yes. for many people. And I understand that too, because especially mm -hmm. if you're more left oriented, yeah, if you sure. don't have that so-called balance, you know, in your right. mind and heart, it's, it's right. a hard place to get to, but I think it's the place of healing and it's the mm -hmm. place of, uh, you know, being relieved of some anxiety and depression, perhaps, sure. because right. you're you're curious because your assumption is God is out ahead of us and God is mystery at the end of the mm -hmm. day, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean you can't know God at all. It just means that God, there's always more than our minds are able to wrap our heads around, that's right. which is why experience is so important in the Christian life, because that's where you connect. I've had experiences yeah. of God I can't explain. That's right. And I've decided not to try to. Right. 
Because you, what would that do? Drive you crazy. Yeah. Right. Probably. Yeah. Would you agree with this that that critical thinking can be helpful? Criticism isn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, if criticism taken in that negative sense, you know, um, but cr- critical thinking is basically putting, is decentering yourself. I think that's really what critical thinking is. The way I see the world is not necessarily always the right way. Even if there are things I hold to and believe, I, the, the world's meaning doesn't center around my perceptions. So critical thinking is basically being critical of yourself and your own stance. Right. And I think that's, that's a helpful thing to do. I think, can it go too far? I guess so. I mean, I don't really think about too far or not, but I think people can sometimes like never settle in anything, but I think eventually most people do. And, Mm -hmm. and some people have more gray areas in their lives than other people. And that's, I think part of their own psychology, maybe they're, social setting, all those kinds of things, you know, but um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. There's a lot more to say, but we can, we can push it further if you want to, but. Well, let's, let's go to this quote because another part of your book talks about that, um, that there, I was talking about in the parts of the Bible that talks about this certain people can't enter the priesthood, right? There's mm-hmm. Bible about, Biblical scripture in the sense of the, that it's very clear of certain disabilities means mm-hmm. you cannot be part of the priesthood. And that right. your quote in this this book, this recent book, is you said to sum it up, the American um, the American Disabilities Act is unbiblical. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. So can you expand on that? Yeah, that's I like grabbing people sometimes, their attention yeah. to things yeah, yeah. like that. Um yeah, I I think that. What what we see in the Bible, like we're talking about mainly the book of Leviticus, but a couple other places as well, mm-hmm. where there were notions of what's called purity or impurity or cleanness or uncleanness that has nothing to do with sin. Mm-hmm. It has to do with purity and impurity. Um, you know, if you touch a dead body, you become unclean or impure. Mm-hmm. You haven't sinned because somebody has to bury it. Right. Right. Um, when a woman has her monthly sickle and uh-huh. there's blood, you become impure. You haven't sinned. That's part of life. Right. But there's something that introduces an impurity in the community and you just keep away for seven days and then you come back or something like that. Right. right. So I think in the priesthood, the priests have to embody a sense of purity and mm-hmm. things that were outside of the norm were considered unclean or impure. And you can see, for example, I mean, the, the classic example in Leviticus is you can't eat lobster. Right. Lobster is unclean or impure. Again, those are not moral categories. Those right. are it's not moral. ritual cure, uh, mm-hmm. um, categories. The reason probably, I mean, people have pondered, like, where does idea even come from? But probably it's, you know, a lobster, it lives in the ocean, but it doesn't have scales. Mm. So what is it? It's in between. Mm-hmm. Well, don't don't eat that. Right. You can't eat in between things because it doesn't have the categories that people belong in and that living things belong in. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the idea behind pure and impure, which is part of Israelite culture. Mm -hmm. The question is, do we maintain that? And of course, the history of Judaism has maintained that largely with kosher laws, you know, certain things you eat and don't eat and you wash your hands and things like that. Um, 
Because that's that's the way of honoring their tradition and honoring God, which I, I don't, that's fine. Yeah. How can I possibly criticize that? Right. Um, Christians have gone in a different direction that, you know, Jesus says in Mark, it's not what goes in, uh, you know, goes uh, into your body that makes you unclean, it's what comes out. What comes out of your mouth, what you say, mm-hmm. in other words, how you act towards other people. Mm-hmm. Not that Jews don't care about how you act towards other people. Remember, Jesus was Jewish, right? I'm right. not trying to make right. a Jewish-Christian right. dichotomy yeah. here. But the thing is that the the purity-impurity thing, uh, Christians have handled differently. And Paul is, you know, really, really clear about this. He says, you know, if your conscience doesn't bother you, mm. eat what you want. Right. If it does bother you, don't. And don't make other people stumble, but you're, it's, it's, in other words, this is not the issue anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. So you put things like the priesthood in the Old Testament. Mm. This is where critical study of looking at things from their perspective and saying, okay, why are they doing this? Which then raises the question, okay, do I do this too? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And a, a, to me, a very fundamental question about Bible reading, which affects our lives and how we do things and what we say is okay, what we say isn't okay. We always have to decide whether something that we read in the Bible is prescriptive or descriptive. Mm, Prescriptive means it's telling you right now what to do. I think an example Mm. of a prescriptive statement is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now it doesn't tell you how to do that, but that's, that's a prescriptive thing. I think that's a law that I want to try to embody. Um, Descriptive is more, well, it's describing now how people thought at a point in time in history, what it means to connect with God. And some of those things change over time. Mm. And we always have to make that decision. I think reading the Bible is a prescriptive or is it descriptive? The days of creation, you know, six days of creation. I think that's describing what Israelites believed at some point in their history. Right. I don't think it's prescribing for me how I should understand the nature of creation. Mm. Right. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a constant thing. And again, if people can feel at home with at wrestling with those kinds of questions, what it does is just the heat is turned down a little bit in terms of like, you're not reading the Bible to get information that should be obvious and just right. do what the Bible says. Right. Just because the Bible says it doesn't mean you do it. It could be a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. And that sounds wishy-washy, like you're trying to get out of the Bible. No, I'm trying to understand it for what I think it is and what many other people think it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And and so, you know, we talk a lot about the Garden of Eden. And whether it's metaphorical or it actually happened, it helps me understand people tremendously. Mm -hmm. Shame and blame, the fear of rejection, going into hiding. You know, I I call that the, the... the emotional trinity that locks us in and all that. Like, it just makes so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. All right. So the part that doesn't make sense, but we're not taught to question, is that all of a sudden there's a snake that speaks, and Adam, and then Eve's not reactive to the fact there's a snake speaking. Mm-hmm. Right? We're so embedded in not questioning that we don't even think about the fact that the snake is speaking. So, so the idea obviously is, if you, you expand on that, is that any animal that was there had tongue, had, could, could speak. So mm. is that your conclusion, right? I'm just curious, right? Because, you know, the, the, the emotions behind the Garden of Eden make so much sense to me. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, a, a snake saying, what's up, Eve, is very yeah. interesting. Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, 
my my take on this is that the that story gives very strong signals. This is is highly symbolic literature, mm-hmm. which means it's not going to be logically consistent. It's it's painting a picture, mm-hmm. and one of those things is that an animal talks. Yeah. And there are two magic trees in the middle of a garden. Yeah. If you read this in any other literature from the ancient world, we'd know exactly this is, some people call it mythic. I think mythic is actually a good word, although it's mm-hmm. troublesome for some people because they right. they misunderstand it as like a lie or untrue because that's sometimes how we use the word myth. It's more, mm-hmm. it's a story of deep meaning that's told in symbolic terms that involves the gods somehow, right? So, right. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I mean, I sometimes put myself in the um, in the mind of an ancient Israelite writing this and saying, to make sure no one gets the wrong idea that we're writing history here, let's there's a talking snake, and because we all know, I think Israelites knew animals don't talk. Right. Okay. I just think that's not really a stretch of the imagination. So, right. so it is highly symbolic. And the question mm-hmm. is, what is the symbolism of the story? Well, there you're off and running to the races because right. people have had different ways of understanding that those highly symbolic stories and how you can take the symbols mm-hmm. and then translate them into something very concrete. Right. And I think people do that legitimately from different perspectives mm-hmm. you know so so the question well what's the snake doing there i mean maybe we're left to ponder that but there's no there's no indication of why does god put something in the snake that's crafty that lets the whole thing go to pot right and christians have thought about this and thought about it and thought about it there's no answer right. there's no clear answer to that question mm-hmm. the only thing that's clear is that the snake isn't satan because it's called the most uh, crafty animal the Lord God had put into the garden. It's symbolic, and many people, myself included, is that uh, snakes are symbols of all sorts of things in antiquity. Two of which is wisdom, because this is about a this is a wisdom discussion he's having with Eve, and also death. Hmm. So, and there are other things too. I mean, I don't want to, you know, there there are other symbolic angles of the snake which I'm actually forgetting at the off the top of my head. But what the snake represents is a very good question. Hmm. Yeah, but just the way you put that and the way you write in your book about it and just spoke about it, it just allows intrigue and allows the curiosity that I think is so necessary. If we are going to get have more of an intimacy with with God. And so I think yeah. it's profound. Okay, so let me ask you this. What is the question, whether it's theological or otherwise, that out of all the interviews you're doing, because you're you're a very wanted man. What's the question that people aren't asking you? Um, what do I want for my birthday? What do you want for your birthday, Pete? I don't know. That's not a good question. I passed already. You missed it, by the way, Ken. That's right. Listen, uh, I, I I said happy birthday on Facebook, didn't I? You did. Okay, good. Along with other people. I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. A, lot anyway. <laughs> yeah a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if uh, a question people aren't asking. I think um, something that I've been really curious about lately, that the more I think about it, the more obvious it is that I wish would be out there on the forefront, is sort of what we're touching on here, which is how does what we know about everything else affect how we understand what God is like? And yeah. in our modern context, that includes, or it's actually not just includes, but it, it's dominated by 
things like technology and science, and it's the hard sciences. It's also the so-called soft sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do those factors affect what we think of when we say God? Right. Yeah. And to me, yeah. that's becoming the most important question. Yeah, I love your answer. Particularly when I think about attachment styles, right? That everyone mm. has attachment style that to their parents ever raised them, and you have different attachments as you go. But that how you attach, especially in the first eighteen months of your life, determine how you see and hear in this world. Mm. And that very much goes into how you see and hear who God is, right. how you hear your pastor, et cetera. And those are the kind of things that I don't think we're talking about enough. So right. I love that you just brought that up. Yeah, I mean, another way of putting it, to narrow it, I think, I think not everyone is interested in particle physics or something like that, but everyone's interested in being human, even if they don't very know true. it, right? Yeah, so very true. who we are just developmentally, for mm-hmm. example, you know, is, is important and how that affects everything else. And right. you probably know the old joke, if you've had parents, you need therapy, right? Amen. So, I mean, something yes. is always going on, right? Mm-hmm. So, so again, knowing yourself... And just knowing something about how humans are human from birth on, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, you know, you can't talk about people. Everybody has a story. Everybody right. has their That's own right. narrative, their own history. Right. And we can't just have a one size fits all sermon where everything is downloaded into the sin category. Right where it might need to be downloaded to the dysfunction category or yeah, to so the good. harm category or to yeah. the, um, mm. I don't know what other words to use, but I know, I know just generally speaking, the Greek Orthodox are much more, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, they're much more in tune with that than Western Christianity and certainly Protestantism. And I valued from that perspective that mm-hmm. the world is a sick place that needs healing mm not an evil place that God's angry with. And I guess I'll just have Jesus die for them and maybe we'll fix it that way kind of thing. Right. right? Yeah. To me, that makes very little sense and it doesn't make sense because I'm trying to take into account the things that you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's, that is so good. Okay. Let's talk about Wordle. We'll start wrapping this up. I'm gonna put you in a hot seat in a second, but let's talk about why is Wordle so damn addictive? Um, It takes our minds off the, our mundane existence and how yeah. we don't have any self-worth and also. Like that. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. Um, I like it because it's, um, I like figuring things out mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it gives me one of the few feelings I have during the day that I've actually accomplished something. Yeah. Cause it's over yeah. and I'm right or wrong. Yes. Yes. There's this left brain thing that's going on there too. Yeah. So I I do actually like that. And um, yeah. I like word things too. I just, I do mm-hmm. cryptograms all the time, which yeah. is sort of a cousin to, I think, Wordle. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, I think each, each puzzle, it starts, it's got a clear beginning and a, you got six. That's right. it. You got that's six right. tries. That's clear right. beginning, clear end. It's like, and each new day is mm-hmm. like the promise <laughs> Of all these possibilities. Right. And then true. like the first one, it's like, and then it was sort of like, depending on your first word, it's like you're seeing either that come to fruition. Right. Maybe you get it in three, which is really mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Or you're seeing it go down the toilet. 
But then tomorrow's another yeah. day and you'll do it again. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's so well put. Also, I think there's something about <clears throat> the color green that all of a sudden, right? Like that's the go color. That's the the stimuli yeah. that's saying that like I've, I have arrived. Mm-hmm. And then the high's over. I dance the high's over. And then tomorrow I get to do it again. Yeah. It's a good thing I'll, I've never gambled. Do you know what I did? Yeah, I know. Seriously. Right, um yeah. I did. I don't know if you noticed on, I think it was yesterday, the day before yesterday on Facebook and Instagram, I jokingly gave away. Did you see that? I, I saw you started something and Ashley came in and said, Ashley, my assistant came in killed. and said, you're a bad person, Pete. Don't do that. Yeah. And I, honestly, I don't, I don't know what got into me, but I made up this funny little sentence using just five words, yeah. five letter words. Yeah, right. And I even forget what the, what the uh, words, I think it was caulk or something like that a couple of days ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, oh my goodness gracious. You'd think <laughs> that yeah. I had embezzled, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a charity or something no, like that. I think that. like he a, murdered an entire village. Like Exactly. Yeah, I, I felt yeah. like ISIS or something mm-hmm. for a minute yeah. there, but because people were really, you could see... <laughs> They were holding it in. Yeah. 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 Like one person, a person I, I know of, she, she put on Twitter, you know, Pete, you know, I love what you do. I follow you all the time. Please take this tweet down. So yeah. I, what yeah. I read that was, Pete, I really love what you do. It's all out the window unless you take that tweet it's down. Right. This, this is conditional. Like, yeah. yeah. It's conditional yeah. now. You know? So, yeah. but uh, yeah, so I apologize for that because that was really a dumb thing to do. But I, yeah. I don't know what got into me. I was just so happy about it. But, I think that but, the, I got the caulk one and I got it pretty fast. And I just felt like I was on your level and I had not seen your post, but I felt okay. like I had reached my dad's very intelligent as well. I felt like I'd reached my, my Jim Honeycutt level, PM's right. level <laughs> of life. It did something for me. So, yeah. Right. I don't know what it is, but it's a, it's a fun game. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat real quick, and then I will let you go okay. burn the world up. So, all right. So just curious, what is, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Just give a quick answer, short answer. What is your favorite quote? Uh, oh, yeah. that's I think that's easy. Um, uh, certainty is the uh, one thing that you're – clinging to and have to let go of that's That's from mother Teresa. there's a whole story Mm -hmm. behind that but it's it's in the sin of certainty if anybody is wondering about that so yeah because um actually the the quote is clarity is the one thing you're holding on to you want clarity that's exactly Mm -hmm. the thing you have to let go of yeah yeah so good yeah what is on your nightstand Hmm? what is on your nightstand um right now it's uh, a wrist brace because I'm have I have carpal tunnel, slight carpal tunnel in my right hand. Mm. Since you have to know, you, um, my uh, my chargers for my watch and for my phone in case I need them. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, it's two books. One by Becca Stevens called "Practically Divine," which came out last fall, yeah. and. Um, I started reading uh, His Dark Materials, which is another HBO thing, but it's a sort of a fantasy novel, uh-huh. which was international bestseller 20 years ago. And I watched it on HBO and I really liked it. So it's a three volume thing. So I started reading that. So that's that's what's on my nightstand. Cool. All right. What surprises people the most about you? Um, <laughs> I Gosh. Um, 
maybe I don't know if it's well when they meet me for the first time or like when they just hear about me and they read about me, I think probably mixing those two things together, something like um, that I'm not a, I'm not a typical academic. Right. I put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. I don't know what a typical academic is, but. You're not it. uh, Whatever that is. I'm probably not it. You're not. What surprises you the most about you? Um. What continually surprises me about me, um, how I'd say how this is psychological, how much my adult patterns have been a part of me since I was very, very, very young. Yes. And just learning what those are Mm -hmm. has been um, enlightening and very healing, too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's such a part of it. Mm -hmm. All right. So last question. From now on, when you hear flip your lid, what are you going to think about? And the correct, correct answer is Kim Honeycutt. But go ahead. Kim Honeycutt. Absolutely. This has been the best interview. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Pete, thank you so much. Um, anything you want to say for people to be able to find you? Obviously, you're a very, very famous podcast for the Bible. The Bible for Normal People. Um, books. Webcat, website. What do you want to say yeah. to people so they can find you? Well, our website is thebiblefornormalpeople.com, and everything is pretty much there. Um, I'm also, you know, social media stuff, so I do that. Yeah. So we, uh, and also Bible for Normal People is launching a TikTok channel. Cool. Yeah, I'm not sure how that's going to go, but well, that's, <laughs> and we've got like 30 or 35 little videos that are ready to go, which will release little by little. So, well, the videos you know. have on your website are hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> really good. The the yeah. questions like, does Pete have friends? Yeah. And is Pete narcissistic? Like stuff like that. <laughs> so y- y'all please go check out his website. Go listen to the podcast. If you have any questions about the Bible, get any of his books, check out his podcast. He brings so much to the table. You don't have to agree with everything. It's just about allowing yourself to do whatever you need to do to figure out a little bit more of who God says that you really are. Pete, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate it. To all of you who are listening, I know you heard a lot of things today that probably reconnected you to who you really are. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today. <laughs>